like to invite you to open in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We've been in this book for a little while, working our way through its timely message. Whenever I'm away a few weeks, I sort of got to get back into it. It's like I was a little nervous sitting, standing there in the coffee room. I got to go back up there and get yourself ready for this. You know, well, never mind. As I say, it, 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 if, you think it's a, if you think it's a breeze, you know, well, not all the time. <laughs> and that's good. That's good. We need the Lord's strength. We really do. Whether, whether going to serve in the DR, whether preaching the word, whether reaching out to that neighbor next door. <laughs> we just need God's strength, and, uh, and he is good to supply it. I know that uh, we've been a little chopped up because of, of things that have happened uh, uh, on Sundays over the past couple of months and, and being away. We're just going to pick up where we left off. So if, you're, if this is your, you know, you've been away a little while, this is first in, we're, we're already in chapter four, so let me just bring you up to that uh, as we're working our way through, through this book, which I believe has a, a message for what we've called the church in the darkest hour. It's a message that we need to hear that Paul has written to these believers. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, going to begin reading at verse 9. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, And to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. Lord God, would you open our hearts by opening our ears, that your spirit might work, might plant your word where it needs to be planted. Get rid of the hard soil, break it up, get rid of the rocks in our lives. Pull up the weeds, Father, that our hearts might be fertile soil to receive the word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have noticed I changed the message title. Susan had it right in the bulletin. I changed it to, I changed it last night. I didn't change the message, okay? So I didn't just throw this together last night, just making you, but change the, change the title as I was thinking through again uh, the words of Paul here. I don't know how many of you did. I will make a confession. And my confession is this. I watched the royal wedding. <laughs> I know, you can shake your heads, and I, and, I'll, and I understand. Let me tell you why I watched the royal wedding. It's back in May, and I was having some real back issues. And um, it was right towards the beginning when, in fact, I, think I, I don't think I was in the pulpit that the Sunday afterwards. And I was like really uncomfortable, and I was not sleeping well at night. I could not get comfortable in bed. I was sleeping down in the recliner in our, in our, uh, in our family room. And so it was like it, it got to about that time of the morning, and, and I, it was just uncomfortable. I could not get back to sleep. So I turn on the TV, and there's the royal wedding. Okay, so that's, uh, that's why I ended up, I did not get up specifically to watch this thing. Uh, I just, I couldn't, I, I couldn't get comfortable and couldn't get to sleep. So, you know, maybe that would do it. I don't know. 
But, uh, you know, it's interesting looking back on that wedding that, that the most memorable, actually the most memorable part of that wedding uh, was, was not all the celebrities that showed up. The most memorable part of that wedding was, was not the beautiful day that it was. Uh, the most memorable part wasn't what everyone was wearing. Um, the most memorable part wasn't like the historic place where this wedding was held. Actually, the most memorable part of that wedding was the preacher's sermon. It was a, it was a homily uh, presented by, by Michael Curry, who was the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. And uh, it's estimated that there were probably about, you know, roughly worldwide, about 1.9 billion people watching this wedding. And, uh, and his, his, his homily really rocketed him to stardom. Uh, and, uh, and, and in follow-up to, to, to what he presented at that wedding, uh, he was interviewed literally by every major American network. They all wanted to talk to him. Uh, they were all talking a- a- about this. The theme of his message was the power of love. Very appropriate for a wedding, right? Wouldn't you say? Talk about love at a wedding. He, he, opened, he opened his message with this quote that came from Martin Luther King Jr., We must discover the power of love, the redemptive power of love, and when we do that, we will make this old world a new world, for love is the only way. And then he went on to say, don't underestimate the power of love. The message was described as fiery. It was described as riveting. One source called it a radical message that was subtly political. One might say that his 13-minute homily was, in its own way, subversive. What do you mean by that? Well, he was there at a wedding. He was there to celebrate marital love at Windsor Castle before dignitaries and celebrities and royalty. And in that setting, he spoke, made mention of the end of poverty, hunger, war, and he spoke of the existence of a new and better world. And yes, he, he mentioned Jesus. I'm not going to vouch for all of his theology. His words were repeated, and they were celebrated in the most unlikely places. Yes, there's plenty of critics. But it's interesting that in a society, both here in America and even over there in England, that is at best indifferent to and becoming more hostile to Christianity, a culture not unlike what the Thessalonians were living in, that in this kind of culture, that message 
caught their attention. Near the end of his homily, he said this. When love is the way, we actually treat each other well, like we're actually family. It's a little bit of what Paul's talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12. He's talking about a love that is a family kind of love. It's actually sort of the primary subject in these verses. It's the word that you will recognize because there's a city named after it, Philadelphia. Call it brotherly love. It's an interesting word because it's actually a word that is an ancient, an example of ancient gender-inclusive language since it applied to both brotherly and sisterly love. And so it was a, it, it's a love that speaks of, of family love. In that time, it was a term that was, that was only used by, if you will, kins, blood relatives. But as Christianity grew and as Christianity spread, it was a term that was adopted by Christians to speak of the reality of our, of our spiritual family because we are indeed blood relatives related by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us, that purchased us, that redeemed us. We have been birthed by the will of the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. Part of our identity as Christians is that of being part of a family. We live in a culture that celebrates the individual, that gives undue attention to the individual. The New Testament reminds us that as Christians, that as followers of Christ, we are a family. A family that is characterized by family love. We are a local family here in this local church. We are, we are part of a family that does extend beyond this local church. There are other gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches, true churches in this community. And then around the world, we are brothers and sisters. That's why it's not, it's not strange to call each other brother and sister. That is what we are. In Christ, there is a kinship there. There is a love bond that exists between believers, especially its experience on the local level in the local church. We are, we are family. We experience family love, and that governs our conduct. You know, families do have codes of conduct. You know, like, okay, here's what identifies us as a family. Sometimes, sometimes those things are very intentionally communicated. Other times it's, it may not be said, but it's just the way it is. I remember growing up uh, in my family that, that one of our codes of conduct was to never be late, which actually meant being early. For my dad, like 10 minutes early equaled being late. And, uh, and, and his famous mantra as we were taking too long to get ready and depart was, they're not going to wait for us just because our name is Ashley. I remember never hearing that. I'm not saying that all 
our codes of conduct as families are good and healthy or spiritual. I'm just saying we have them. We have them. When our boys were coming into their teen years, Deb and I sat down and we wrote out some things that we were going to expect of them. Some things that they were, that they were to do and some things that they weren't, we weren't going to let them do. And then we sat down with them and we took them through that code explaining why we had this in place because of what we were aiming at in their lives. So families have, if you will, these codes of conduct. This part of Thessalonians, this part of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians is like that. It's like, it's like sitting down with the family and saying, this, this is what our life is going to be like as a family. Chapters 4 and 5 are about behavior, about how a Christian conducts himself. Paul's trying to, to help these, these young believers. He's trying to help form them into a community of, of followers of Jesus Christ. They have come out from, from various backgrounds, backgrounds that, that would naturally keep them apart, now trying to bring them together. And he's trying to help them form that, that new identity, and it's, a, it's the identity of a family. And so he is showing to them and, and explaining to them how to live as a family. We have a way that we do that here, by the way, at Northfield Baptist Church. It's called our church covenant. Many Baptist churches have church covenants. We are, we are members by covenant one with another. And at each of our, each of our four member meetings that, that we have uh, throughout the year, we, we together recite that covenant because in that covenant, what we are talking about, what we are describing is what, if you will, our family life, our family conduct, what family love will look like in this church. That's sort of what Paul is doing right here in these chapters. And here in these verses, he, he focuses in on this brotherly love, but concerning brotherly love. What we learn as we just take a glance down through the verses is, is Paul tells us this about that love. He, he says this love is God taught. Look at that. Verse 9, concerning brotherly love, he says, you don't, need that I, you don't need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. That's an amazing word. This is a, this is a God taught love. And, and what God teaches them and what God has taught them about this brotherly love is that it is to be a sacrificial, unconditional kind of love. If you've been around the New Testament, you pro- and, and in a Sunday school class or a Bible study, you probably have heard of various words for love. There's 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 phileo, Philadelphia. There's agape, and and sometimes we say, you know, the the best and the most supreme kind of love there is is, is agape. Like 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 the other kind of love is just a little bit less. That's really not accurate. This, this text, if you will, celebrates for us this, this brotherly kind of love. Agape tells us, here's how you're to love in that manner. You are to love in an unconditional way. You are to love in a sacrificial way. And Paul says, God has taught you to do this. He has taught you this kind of love. For example, we learn in 1 John 4, 7 that God is the source of this love. John writes in that, in that text, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. It finds its source in him. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. We also learn that God demonstrates this love. We're told in Romans 5, 8 that God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God is the source of it, and God has has shown us what this love looks like. He has shown us at great cost to himself 
having given his own son for our salvation, he has demonstrated this love for us. That's how he's taught us. We also know from the scriptures that God himself gives this love. In fact, in Romans 5, 5, he says this, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God has given us this love. This is the love God himself teaches us. He's the source of it. He demonstrates it. He gives it. It's amazing. Do you ever feel like the love that God expects you to live out is impossible. I mean, when you think of the high demands of love, its sacrificial nature, its unconditional nature, the love that is to be shown towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, the love that's to be shown to our neighbors, whether or not they know Christ, the love that is to be shown even to our enemies. You ever thought, you ever felt like, I can't do that. If you haven't thought it, how many of us are going to put our hands up and say, we have done that perfectly every day of our life? Like th- this past week, I never once, never once failed in love. We know better, don't we? Well, you know what? It is impossible. We can't do this. That's why soaring sermons like Bishop Curry's, they really, in the long run, they don't change things. It's why all our earthly talk about love, in the end, really becomes sentimental wishing. Without God, we cannot do this. Without God's enabling help, we cannot do this. We can't live this standard. But here's the good news. God models it for us through Christ. He gives it to us through the Holy Spirit, thus enabling us to to, to love. You see, what he teaches us to do, he enables us to do. God has already loved in this way. God has already loved perfectly. And if you will let him love you, and if you will let him love in you and through you, you will be loving in the same way he does. He's already done the hard part. Let him do the work. He knows how to love. He knows how to do it perfectly. Let him do the love through you. Just stop resisting him. Stop pushing him away. Stop closing your ears to him. Stop turning away from him. Let him do the work through you. Because he's ready to. It is a God-taught love. What's interesting in in verse 10, he goes on and he says says to these these new Christians, you have learned this. In fact, earlier chapters, the reports, Paul's getting just such encouraging reports. These young believers, they they have learned to love in this manner. In in fact, they've learned to love in this manner to to the degree that it's it's impacting the city, it's impacting the whole region in which they live. You see that? He says, says, and indeed you do so toward, toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. This Again, this is not Paul rebuking them. Paul is saying, listen, what's coming back, what I'm hearing is good. 
is good. You, you do love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. You, your church is, is marked by family love, and, and, and the love that you have as, as a church family has spread beyond, beyond your church. So let's take, this, let's take this a little bit farther, brothers and sisters. Let, let me give you some more challenge to help you grow in this area. And that's what he does in verses 11 and 12. And that's where I really thought about this, this idea of, of, of subversive. This, this love that he talks about in that setting, in that culture, is a, is a subversive kind of thing. Now, when we talk about something being subversive, we're talking about seeking or intending to undermine the power and the authority of an established system or institution. Undermine. Rather than just like outright overthrow. You see, you overthrow through force. Whether that force is military force or political force. You throw them all out. You overthrow the system. You undermine through other means and methods. Not always illegal. Jesus, in his life, in his ministry, in his teaching, was subversive. He didn't arrive, as you know, with an army to, uh, to kick out the Romans. He didn't come with his angelic forces. He came in flesh and blood. He came with grace and truth. He came with love and mercy and compassion. And through his actions... Through his teaching, he began to whittle away and, and, and undermine the established system. Subversive. In these two verses, as Paul continues on the theme of love, he does so by expanding on, on how they are to abound in love. This isn't all there is. These two verses are not all there is to say about abounding in love. But here's what he specifically said to this church in this situation. He says this, aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands. It's pretty direct. And why should, why should they do this? What, what is the aim of doing this? He says this, that you may walk properly, that, is, that you may walk appropriately toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. You see, there is power and influence in this kind of love that has impact both inside and outside the church. Look at that, those first two. This, this whole uh, there in, in verse 11. He, he talks about, about having impact on those who are outside. He says, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to live quietly. I want you to, to mind your own business which I believe connects with that result in verse 12, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside. I think those first two admonitions are really directed towards their relationship with people outside the church. Live quietly and mind your own business. Those instructions definitely have social connotations. Do not be busybodies. But it also has political connotations. When these Christians that he writes this letter to, when they were converted, 
There was a a public outcry that arose in that city and resulted in oppressive measures against them. You can read about it in Acts chapter 17. The whole city was in an uproar. They became center stage. It became a very public thing. And whether willingly or unwillingly, they had come into public view and they had suffered for their faith. Paul's exhortation to them to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs is a very practical piece of advice, especially when you exist in a hostile culture. Paul hoped, as he gave that counsel to them, that by maintaining a lower profile, they would avoid further trouble. And thus, in such a way, they would not bring further hostility upon the church from their opponents. Now, don't mistake Paul. He's not calling for the abandonment of the public arena. But he is advising Christians to be careful. Christians to be very careful what they say and what they do in the public arena. They are to avoid as much as possible the strife, the social pressure, the chaos of that arena because invariably with it, there was the potential for violence against them and against the congregation. That was what they had experienced before. He wants them instead to really focus on the needs of building up their congregation. They are vulnerable. They're a young church. They live in a city that's, that's suspicious of them. He wants them, he wants them, listen, I want you, I want you to be careful now, that may sound foreign to Paul, who, who we see as, as a bold man who sort of seemed he, he went anywhere, he preached anywhere, he said anything he wanted to say, come what may. They want to arrest him, arrest him. They want to throw him in prison, throw him in prison. They want to beat him, beat him. And that's true of Paul. But listen to what he's saying here. He is saying to these Christians who live in a hostile environment, be careful. Be careful when you're out in the public arena. Don't abandon it. You just be really careful. Because what you say and do in that arena can have implications that don't just impact you. They can impact your church. They can impact the testimony of Christ in that city, in that society. It's calling them to be careful. This is not a matter of hiding their faith. This is not a matter of of, of accommodating the unsaved. This is not a matter of never speaking openly about the gospel. This is not a matter of, of not standing up for what is right. I mean, the apostles did that all the time. It's a reminder to these believers to, to live in such a way as to avoid drawing needless negative attention to themselves. This is not about trying to please everyone, but we are to behave according to the accepted standards of a secular society in which we live. That is, we are to walk properly. We are to walk acceptably towards those that are outside. This is not compromising our morals. This is not trying to fit in for for selfish reasons. The point is, we don't need to be scandalous, and we should not be scandalous in our behavior. The gospel is the scandal. Jesus Christ crucified is the scandal. He is the stumbling block, not us. Let the gospel be the scandal. Not your behavior, not your rhetoric. See, this subversive love is it's, uh, wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. Live quietly. 
Sounds like maybe we ought not to join in with our angry, shouting society. Seems like that's not a place for the church to find itself. I have yet to see that advance the gospel. Mind your own business. Social media invites you to peddle your business and meddle in other people's business. Don't take the bait. Internet trolls are not minding their own business. There are some matters that are none of our business, especially those things that distract us from our business, which is the kingdom of God. The evangelical church in America is losing credibility rapidly. Some of it, without a doubt, is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But some of it is because we're ignoring the injunction to live quietly and to mind our own business. We're sometimes guilty of saying reckless things about public people or groups we don't like. And it has a negative impact upon all of God's family. You see, if you love the family, we're going to be careful about not bringing unnecessary hardship on the family. Do you ever cringe sometimes when you hear the news and supposedly some Christian or some church said or did this and we're all going to get lumped together? We all get lumped together. And we get mad at the world for doing that. Don't get mad at the world. Be careful. We need to be careful what we say and how we say it and what it is we're trying to pursue with that. He also goes on, he says, he speaks of this brotherly love with reference to insiders. And he says, listen, I want you to work with your own hands. Interesting, in in this passage, uh, Paul talks about work, work as an opportunity to love. Way back, way back at the beginning of his letter when he was greeting them, he, he, in verse, chapter 1, verse 2, he gave thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in my prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor, your labor, your work that flows from love. This work is, is how you love your family. You love your family by providing for them. This work is how you love your church family, by having the ability to share and to help with others in need. And with this statement, as Paul is talking to these young Christians, he elevates work. And this is, again, something Paul modeled. He modeled it by working with his own hands when he was there in that city so as not to be dependent on them to have to provide for him. So why would he give this command? Why, why work? He says that you may lack nothing. You see, work is how we make money so we can meet our physical needs and our family. We work so we can pay mortgages and rent. We work so we can put food on the table. We work so, so, so the needs and necessities of, of life can, can be met. And so when he's talking about lacking nothing, it means as we work with our hands, those needs are met. Loving family means meeting their needs. Elsewhere, it's interesting in the New Testament that Christians are instructed to share with God's people who are in need and to practice hospitality, to give of what we have, to give of what we own. Well, this instruction that Paul gives here in in verse 11 is, is, is the flip side of that, to those who might be the recipients of that sharing. To those who are able to work, Paul says they ought to do so. And they should not take advantage of the willingness of fellow believers. Motivated by love, who are, who are there to help them. It, it, it's, it's both, we, are, we are to be generous people. 
We are to be giving people. There is nothing wrong, there is nothing shameful in having to receive help from people. Nothing shameful when we get in times of need. And and things like that come up all the time as a church. And you as a church are generous in your giving. and, And there are opportunities to help our brothers and sisters in need. One of the things that we talk about in our covenant. There's nothing shameful with finding yourself in a place where you, where, you, where you need help. Never be embarrassed to receive the help because it is given as part of family love. But what Paul does remind them and warn them of is those in the church that might be tempted to want to live off that and say, you know, I don't think I ever need to go back to work again. Everyone at the church will, 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 will pay my bills. They'll take care of everything. Paul says, if you can work, you can work with your hands. He says, go work with your hands so that you will not lack anything. See, this brotherly love has two directions. There's a willingness to assist those in need, especially in the spiritual family, but there's a responsibility to not exploit or take advantage of the willingness of fellow believers to help. It is, it is, loving, to, <clears throat> it is loving to support others who are in need. It's one of the reasons we work. It's loving to support ourselves so as not to need to be supported by others. That's really what Paul's counsel is to them as they sort through that. You see, leading quiet lives, not agitated like the world, minding our own business, not distracted with all kinds of meddling things, and working responsibly, putting our hands to the task at, at hand, those in and of themselves may not seem to be a big deal. But they can be subversive. Because there is a, there's a consistency, there's a steadiness. There's a steadiness in that. That sometimes wins the attention of an unsaved person. I can assure you it probably wins their attention much more than like yelling at them. As we just go through this life steady, confident, focused on the task that God has given us to a task in the brief time he gives us to accomplish it. Keeping our eye on the goal. Back to Curry's homily on love. Several times he he talked about love making this old world a new world. He talked about changing the very life of this world. Throughout his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul reminded them of the return of Jesus Christ. He he talks about that in every single chapter. He talks about the coming of of the kingdom of his glory. He talks about Christ's coming and and his return. In fact, the the next portion we're going to get into in 1 Thessalonians 4 gets into that. There, There is a new world coming. There is a new order coming. You see, the world in which we live is under an old order. The the world in which we live is under an order that is irreparably damaged. In the words of the insurance adjuster, our world is totaled. It must be replaced to be livable. There is a a new order, a new world, a new kingdom that's coming. It's invisible, but we know what it's like because the Bible reveals it. It's not a dream. 
It really exists. The usual means by which one kingdom is thrown out and another is put in place, like military force, democratic elections, those means are not available to us. Armies and votes won't do it. So what is available to us? Well, here in this text, the subversive method of love. Love that is peaceful, that is respectful, that is responsible. And where do we learn that from? We learn it from God. And where do we practice it? In the church. So that when we get out there, we're ready. There's always been a yearning in the hearts of God's people to overthrow the existing order that is so evil, that is so unjust, that is filled with so much suffering. But we can't overthrow it with the world's methods. When Christ returns, he can take care of that. And that is what he is doing right now, one heart at a time. Because the heart is totaled. Nothing can repair it. A brand new one is needed. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. There's no army that can do that. There's no law that can do that. Only God can do that through faith in the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. I wonder, has God given you a new heart filled with his love as you've called upon him for forgiveness, for life? I wonder, church, what might happen if this love we have learned from God, if we taught this love to our community. You see, our, our mission isn't to bring in the kingdom of God. It's to get people ready for it. It's to get people ready for it. How do we do that? By winning hearts through the love of God displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, it's not the big elaborate endeavors. It's small and routine things like peaceful living, like being attentive to your responsibilities, like, like serving others, like encouragement. There's a man that's been on my P.I. squared list. P.I. squared, pray, invest, invite. Been on my list. Just been praying for him and just trying to stay in touch. Nothing fancy. Just drop by, say hi, how's it going? Going through a really tough time. Real, real, real challenging time. Um, he, he doesn't need my advice about the situation. I, I don't need to meddle in this situation by asking all kinds of personal questions. He just needs to know that what he's going through matters. And people care. And this week we got to have a little text exchange talking about what was happening. Able to just through through a text to have some encouragement back and forth. Still praying for him to come to know Christ. 
Don't underestimate those little things. Don't underestimate a quiet life. We're not talking about like going and hiding. Don't underestimate a quiet life. Don't, don't underestimate the power of staying out of business you don't really need to get involved in so that you can focus on what you need to get involved in. And then just being diligent and responsible in the task that God gives you and see what he'll do through that. Brothers, let's love one another. Let's love one another so we can love outside these walls and see if God might change some lives. Help us, Father, to that end, I pray. We need you for this. We need you. We, we idealize this love. We, we know this, this love is so important. We, we, we desire, but Lord, we, we confess that we just fall flat on our faces so often. We need you, and, and you have already loved in this way, and you are ready to love this way through us. So God, may we surrender ourselves to you to that end. For the one who doesn't know that love yet, they have not, they have not received your love. Oh God, please, please help them to see. Help them to see your love for them and to come to you with open hands, confessing their need, embracing what Christ has done to themselves. God, teach us to love one another in this congregation that we might love those outside of this congregation, that we might see lives and then homes and then neighborhoods changed by you. We give ourselves to you to that end. Our heads bowed and eyes closed. We're going to sing as we conclude our time, drawing our thoughts down to to respond to the Lord. Your response may be the song that we sing. Your response may be a prayer that you're praying right now. Your response might be the need to just step out, come to the the front and make and and confess Christ or or, or seek him or have someone go aside with you and and show you how you can know for certain that Christ is your Savior, that, that you have received this love or Maybe just someone to pray with you about some things in your life that are holding back this love. You respond to the Lord as we sing. We are here. We are ready to help you. So God, for your praise and for your glory, we ask all of this. Amen.